think that's Pat Benatar, is maybe the most accurate love song that I know. And um, the reason it's accurate is because love is a battlefield, but not necessarily in the way that uh, the artists of that song thought. You know, all of life really is a fight for what will get our first love, for what will win our affections and allegiance. Or to use the language that the Bible uses, all of life is a fight for what we will worship. And that's what Revelation is about. Only when God is getting our first love, only when God is the object of our worship, will we have blessed lives now and also into eternity. So that's what we're going to think about for a couple of minutes this morning. But before we do that, we need to get caught up about where we are in Revelation. Now, we've been studying the book for a couple of weeks now, but I need to remind you again that there are two big principles of interpreting this book that we've been talking about week after week. The first principle is that this is symbolic literature that should be read as such. Okay? That doesn't make it, by the way, any less true. It just makes it a particular genre. And then... The second principle is that the chapters in Revelation, by and large, refer not just to what we, if you've been around church, would popularly think of the end times. That is, the final few years or days or weeks before the return of Jesus Christ. It does refer in some part to those, but largely Revelation is about the entire time between Jesus' first and second coming. The entire church age. Or to put it more practically, it's about our age. It's about the here and now. Now, this morning, we're going to add a third interpretive principle to those two that you're going to need in your Bible reading if you're going to understand especially these middle chapters of Revelation. And this principle is called recapitulation. Recapitulation. What does that mean? Well, thank you for asking. Here's what that means. Uh, Large sections of Revelation are not chronological That is, they're not to be read in a chronological timing sequence. Rather, they are cyclical. That is, the chapters in Revelation tell the same story in different ways. You know, if you like hip-hop records or other types of music, you might be familiar with remixes. Sometimes on popular records, there's a song that comes out as a single, and later on, on the same record, there's a remix, a different version with a different mix, with different instruments of that same song. That's one way you can think about Revelation. Revelation is a series of remixes telling the same story in different ways. Now, this started with the seals of chapters 6 and 7 that we looked at last time. And what we saw is that those seals are symbolic ways of representing the truth that God will bring his people through the suffering of this life and into his new world. Now, in chapters 8 and 9, we see seven more things, but this time they're not seals, they're what? They're trumpets, okay? So this is a recapitulation. It's a second cycle telling really the same sort of idea and the same story about the same period in time from a different angle. And so Revelation 8 and 9 do not chronologically follow Revelation 6 and 7. If you read Revelation that way, you're going to get confused. Rather, Revelation 8 and 9 are recapitulating the seals. It's a remix. Now, John is still seeing visions about our age, the age between the first and second comings, But now he's seeing a new vision, a vision of these seven trumpets. And this morning, we're just going to look at the first six. The seventh trumpet is in chapter 11. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. 
And also, each cycle, the last thing you need to know is that each cycle, each remix, gets a little bit more intense. A little bit more intense as we move towards the end of the book. So, whereas the seals were about God's protection, the trumpets are primarily about God's judgment. They're about God's judgment on false worship, on our disordered loves. They're about God's judgment on idolatry. So hopefully that sets us up well for this text. So let's let's summarize it like this. The objects of our worship determine the outcome of our lives. That's the main idea. The object of our worship, the objects of our worship determine the outcome of our lives. Okay, so three parts. First, the judgment of false worship. And then second, the power behind false worship. And then thirdly, the way to true worship, okay? So with the background set, let's jump in. Verse chapter 8, 1 through 13, we see the judgment of false worship. And again, let me just lay the groundwork. Revelation is a book that is all about worship. It's all about worship. And it makes this point again and again. You know, you can think of it like this. There's basically two types of people in the world. Cowboys fans? No, not really. There are two types of people in the world. There are people that worship the one true and living God that orient and frame their lives around him and his glory. And then there are people that worship someone or something that is not the one true God. And the object of what we worship determines the outcome of our lives, both here and also in the future. Now, we saw in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation that the center of this universe is God. His throne room is what everything else revolves around him. And everything else has its existence because of God. And God alone is worthy of worship. God alone can satisfy our deep and desperate longings to worship. To center our lives around something. By the way, that word worship, it doesn't just mean like singing. I don't know, that's kind of what we think of if we're from a churchy background. Worship is a word that refers to what it is that we're orienting and centering our entire existence around. And what Revelation teaches again and again is that to worship, <clears throat> those who worship God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit ultimately experience final and forever blessedness in His presence, as well as some joy and hope in this life. And those who worship anything else who center their lives on anything else, ultimately experience final and forever separation from his presence, as well as sorrow and hopelessness now, okay? So that's what these chapters are about. So let's look at the text. We see that Jesus, from the throne of God, sends these seven angels from the throne room in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 8. You can see that. And they blow these trumpets, beginning there in verse 6. Now, what do the trumpets symbolize? Now remember, John is getting all of his imagery, all of this symbolism from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, trumpets almost always are signs of impending doom. For example, the prophet Joel in chapter 2 verse 1 writes this. Blow a trumpet in Zion, Jerusalem. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble For the day of the Lord is coming. You know, think about a more famous Bible story. The battle of Jericho. When Joshua is leading the people into the promised land. And they come across the fortified city of Jericho. And they remember they march around the city. 
six times. Then on the seventh day, they march around the city multiple times. And what are they doing, among other things, as they're marching around the city? They're what? They're blowing a trumpet. It's a, it's a battle cry. It's a sign and a sound of impending judgment. So the trumpets in Revelation are John's way of describing the judgment of God upon all false worship. The trumpets are God's crushing and casting away all who refuse to bow the knee to him as the rightful king of the universe and who insist on worshiping something else. And so it's a little bit heavy here this morning, folks. And the first four trumpets get us started. A few things to see about these verses. We see those four trumpets in verses 7 through 12. If you read it and you know your Old Testament, then you'll see maybe that the first four trumpets are all patterned after the plagues from the book of Exodus. Remember when God rescued his people from Pharaoh and out of Egypt. That's the the paradigm for judgment in the Old Testament. And interestingly, the plagues in Exodus, those were really God's way of saying to the world, everything that you people bow to and center your lives around that is not me is powerless. And I'm going to prove that to you now. And so what we see really is a battle of the gods in the plagues. Just as one example, the plague of darkness, which we see also here in Revelation. The plague of darkness wasn't just like a cool supernatural thing that God did. It was a showdown between the living God, Yahweh, and the sun God that the Egyptians worshipped, whose name was Ra. And so in putting darkness over the sun in the middle of the day, God is saying, I am superior to your false God, to Ra, to your idols. When you center your life around anything that is false, when you worship anything that is not me, you're living in futility. You're worshiping something that is not real, that can't bear the weight of your worship. So that's one thing to see about the trumpets. The trumpets in Revelation are saying something similar that the plagues in Exodus said. And if you also look at those first four trumpets, you can see that they're all judgments of God related to the things in which people place their trust and hope in this world. For example, um, trumpets one and three in one way or another, are really about shortages of food supply or bad drinking water. Look at the third angel, by the way, for example, in verse 10, when he blows his trumpet, we read, a star fell from heaven. Now, all this symbolism is confusing. The bottom line is, wormwood was a bitter-tasting extract from a plant, and what they're saying here is, is that part of the judgment is that water is not going to be drinkable. Therefore, when you place your hope and your trust in being provided for based on the natural resources that the world can give, when that's what you're worshiping, it's going to result in judgment. Another example is in the second trumpet, we see there that a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea. Now, that mountain almost for sure represents an ancient kingdom, an ancient nation, probably Babylon. So in Jeremiah, for example, he uses the mountain imagery to refer to Babylon multiple times. So what's happening here? What's happening is God is saying, when you place your trust on any earthly prince or king or nation state or military or government, it's going to result in judgment. You can't bank on those things. Okay? So these judgments of God 
are God depriving people of their earthly securities so that they can see how worthless those things are as objects of worship. That's what the trumpets are all about. I mean, you can summarize it like this. Here's what the trumpets are trying to communicate to us. Idolatry does not pay. False worship does not and cannot give what it promises to give us. Now, let's not be naive. We modern or postmodern people tend to think like this. You know, I'm not bowing down to Ra, the sun god. I didn't do that last Thursday afternoon. So... I'm not an idolater. This is irrelevant to me. This is for sort of an ancient bygone age. Now those ancient cultures were more animistic than we are now. And so the way their idolatry manifested itself was different. But make no mistake, we are all worshiping something. And we've talked about this already as we've worked through Revelation. And you need to understand this about yourself. Everything that any of you, anything that any of you ever does, you do because of worship. You know that? None of you ever makes a choice in life that is apart from or subtracted from what you are primarily primarily valuing and worshiping and centering your life around. That's the way we're designed as humans. Listen, you cannot not worship. You can't do it. And here's the thing to get practically. Worshiping God the only true object of worship, the only one who can bear the weight of our worship is actually freeing for us. But worshiping anything that is not God, false objects of worship, idols, is enslaving and eventually is going to crush us. And really, in a sense, that is the judgment. God lets your false worship meet its inevitable conclusion. And its inevitable conclusion is that it will dismantle your life and leave you shattered. Just very quickly, let me say this by way of application. If you're going to experience change in your life, if you're going to experience change in your life, what you need is a reordering of your loves. If you're going to experience change in your life for the better, what you need is a reordering of your desires. You need a reordering of your objects of worship. And here's what I want to say. In churches, some of you might not have been in church for a while, and that's fine. We're really glad you're here. But let me just tell you, because I've been in church my whole life, and I know that in churches, we tend to think that all we need for change is new information. Um, But that, that really won't work. I hate to break burst your bubble. I hate to break the news to you. Information does not inherently equal transformation. The Christian philosopher Jamie Smith says this. He says, it's as if the church is pouring water over our heads to put out a fire in our hearts. So so what do we do then to reorient our desires? Well, we need information, learning things is important, but that alone is not going to do it. The way we reorient our desires is through forming new habits. And the new habits must be centered on things like worship and prayer. That is communing with the living God and seeing that he really can meet the innermost needs of your heart in a way that nothing else can. And so just very practically, that is part of what we're doing here, by the way, on Sundays. We are being formed into new people with reoriented desires. 
We are time and again recentering our lives around God because that is the only thing that's going to produce change. That's what's going to help us see the folly of false worship. By the way, that's part of the reason we need to meet weekly and confess our sin and confess our faith and come to the table and hear from God's word and spend time with other Christians. We're sort of reframing ourselves. We're returning to our senses again. Our habits are being reoriented and reformed. That's what worship is intended to do along with prayer. And so what we need if we're going to change is not just more knowledge. What we need is our desires to shift in a Godward direction. That's part of the purpose of Revelation. We see that there's judgment upon false worship. Secondly, we see also that there is a power behind false worship. In verse 13 of chapter 8, we read that an eagle, and a, and a weird symbol, symbolism here from Revelation. Eagles are associated with judgment, by the way, in the Old Testament as well. But the eagle comes in verse 13 and he says, Whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth, because the next three trumpets are going to be a lot worse than the first four trumpets were. That's the point. So the intensity as we move into chapter 9 is picking up as things move through this cycle. Now, I said earlier, the seventh trumpet is in chapter 11, but here we see trumpets 5 and 6, and they're significantly more intense than the first four. One way we see that is that they impact all those who don't follow Jesus. Whereas the first four, did you notice that language of a third, a third, a third, a third? That's intended to say that these things will happen here and there throughout the ages. But these judgments are going to affect all who do not follow Jesus. They're going to affect all who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Verse 4 of chapter 9. Now here's the way I want us to think about this. What makes our propensity to false worship so powerful? Why are these false gods and idols so enslaving? That's the question that chapter 9 is answering for us through this symbolic language. And here's the answer. The reason that false worship is so enslaving is because the power that lies behind it is demonic. It is supernatural. Now I know, like probably 25% of you I just lost. <laughs> like, okay, he's gone crazy. He's talking about demons and supernatural and demonic, and we'll get to that in a minute. Just stay with me, please, for a few minutes here, if you can. Um, look at verse 1 of chapter 9. There's a star that falls from heaven, and that star is almost certainly representing the devil, Satan himself. He, or one of the chief lieutenants of the devil. And he's mentioned again in verse 11 by the names Abaddon and Apollyon, which are Hebrew and Greek words, respectively, for destroyer. And this demon, or the devil himself, unleashes judgment on the world in the form of demonic powers that we read in the first few verses there were formerly reserved for the demonic realm, but are now roaming free, wreaking havoc. They're causing spiritual blindness. They're deceiving the people of the world. That's why we see language of darkness and smoke and um, other things like that. Those are, that's the language of, of deception. And by the way, briefly, just notice that the angel is, this fallen angel, the star is, is given the key to the shaft. Who is it that gives it to him? It's God. So God is still in control. He's still on his throne room. Even the work of the evil one falls under his authority. 
But never beside the point, uh, moving forward, we see then that these demons are described in verse 7 as, as locusts. Now again, don't think of that literally. This is not a literal locust plague. It's remixing the Old Testament literal locust plague of Egypt or of Exodus and also referring to other parts of the New Testament where lo- or the Old Testament where locusts are symbols of the coming judgment of God. So this locust army is a metaphor describing that God uses demonic forces to judge those who refuse to worship him. That's what it means. And, and I want you to see that the bottom line of that description of the locusts is that they are fierce. They're powerful. They're not to be messed with. And they're sent to torment for a time, verse 4, only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, the people of the world who do not know and serve King Jesus. And then in verse 13, the sixth trumpet is sounded. And we see four evil angels, fallen angels, four demons, um, release an army of lion horses who were bound on the other side of the Euphrates. Now, a lot of interpreters of Revelation in history have gone to great lengths trying to figure out what army this could be. You know, well, maybe it's China. They've got a huge army. They've got millions of people. That's missing the whole point. It's missing the whole point. That's not the way to read Revelation. This is symbolic literature referring to the way God acts in judgment in our age. Okay? And just like with the locusts, these lion horses refer to powerful, fierce, demonic forces that are unleashed in the world to work evil and thus to bring judgment. And you'll notice there that they unleash these plagues, verse 18, that kill a third of mankind. Now that, I think, probably is a reference to physical death. I think probably what's going on here is that God is saying that part of his judgment upon false worship is seen in the demonic powers holding sway and influence over the wars and the genocide and the enslavement and the big-scale tragedies tragedies and travesties that we see in our world. That's what's going on here. And so the, the point is that the reason that false worship, the reason our propensity to idolatry is so enslaving is because the forces behind that kind of false worship, the forces behind idolatry are powerful. They're demonic. They're supernatural. They're much stronger than we are. In the Lord of the Rings, you remember, uh, I believe this is the two towers, Pippin the Hobbit is on the journey with the rest of the fellowship and they've got this little orb. If you're familiar with the books, you might know the orb. And the orb is to be used by powerful wizards. And when they use it, they can see different places that are far away. And Pippin one night wakes up because his curiosity gets the best of him and he goes and he touches the orb, but he's not nearly powerful enough to handle it. And so he sees the eye of Sauron and Sauron uses the orb to find out where Pippin is and it freaks him out, right? That's a similar idea to what's going on here. The forces that are at work in this world, behind the scenes, in the spiritual realm, are powerful. 
They are significant forces. And that's the reason that so much of the time our propensity towards false worship, our propensity towards idolatry is enslaving us. It's enslaving us because we are held captive by forces much stronger than we are. And that in itself we see in Revelation is the judgment of God. Now, I know for enlightenment people like us, for Western people, for modern people, that's hard to take in. You just need to get the worldview of the Bible and maybe let it correct your worldview, which is probably far too materialistic, which is probably far too fixated on things that we can see and taste and touch. But but here's the bottom line. All of us are under some form of spiritual influence. All of us are under some form of spiritual power. We're either under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, or we're under the power and influence of demons. Now, Paul in Ephesians said that. He says, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if you want to understand Christianity, you have to know that Christians believe that there is more to what is real than what you can see, touch, or hear. There is more than the material world. Walker Percy uh, is such a great novelist, and he wrote a book called Love in the Ruins. And the hero of that book is a guy named Dr. Moore. And Dr. Moore, you know, Percy's point is to make a satire on the modern world. And Dr. Moore is a physician, and at one point he writes this about other physicians. So if you're a doctor, don't be offended. But he says this, There still exists in the medical, medical profession this quaint superstition that only that which is visible is real. And I think we oftentimes fall prey to that quaint superstition, that only that which is visible is real. Well, the world of the Bible, and frankly the real world, tells us something different. And listen, why does it matter for you to get that? You know, when the rubber meets the road, who cares? What does it matter to me? Well, here's why it matters. The reality of demonic forces means that you need a rescuer who is stronger than you are. Do you ever wonder... You ever wonder why you can't seem to get your life together the way you want? Do you ever wonder why you can't get past particular addictive behaviors that you know for a fact are destructive to you? Why you keep relying on relationships that you know are going to burn you? Why you keep banking on belief systems that have a track record of abuse and harm in your life? Why do you keep doing those things? Well, the reason is because you are captive to the powers and forces of a dark and evil spiritual realm. And only the power of God in Jesus Christ can save you and free you. Only the one whose eyes are like flaming fire and who rides on a white horse with the sword of power coming from his mouth. Only the one who holds all the stars in his hand and whose voice is like the roaring of the ocean can free you from their power. 
you are living your life on a very real spiritual battlefield that is warring for your love. It's warring for your affection. It's warring for your worship. And if you're not in Jesus, you are captive to the enemy. And he is out to deprive you and destroy you. And you need to get rescued and broken out of bondage by King Jesus because only King Jesus can do that for you. That's why all this stuff matters, you see. It's not just sort of weird, old literature that is an interesting intellectual curiosity but doesn't have much bearing on your daily life. No, it's telling you something significant. The reason that you can't change yourself is because there are forces that work in your life that are much more powerful than you can ever dream of being. And if you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit operative in your life day by day by faith then you have no hope you have no chance you can never escape the power behind false worship is significant and so let's look thirdly at the way to true worship look at verses 20 through 21 of chapter 9 the very end there john makes the point i'll just let me just read it the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up, worshiping, there's the word, worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So those verses make the point that these judgments of God on idolatry did not bring about repentance. And the seventh trumpet is coming. The final judgment is on its way. Okay? So so here's the idea. All of these judgments are seen by John in his vision. And all of these judgments are being read by us now to provoke us to repentance. They are intended to warn you. They are intended to supernaturally break the strongholds and powers in your life that will kill you and to bring you into a new kingdom with a good and loving master. And so here's how I want to wrap up. How do we do that? (laughs) How do we reorient our desires? How do do we worship truly? How do we get released from the captivity of the evil one? And, And the answer is very simple and yet at the same time very hard. It's simply this, repent. Repent. Now, that is a very unpopular word. And it's in part unpopular because the church has at times misused it and our culture routinely misrepresents it. If you would, just as a thought exercise, think of repentance like this with me. Repentance is simply this. It is coming to your senses spiritually. It's it's realizing that the people or the things that you are centering your life around will not finally bring you relief or joy or peace or life. In fact, they will actually crush you and destroy you and lead you straight to God's judgment. Even if they're good things, you can't make them the center of your existence. They can't bear that weight and you can't bear that weight. And so what does repentance mean? Repentance means that you simply come to your senses and see that for what it is. 
And it's when you see that, that only when you orient and shape your life around God can you get what you most need. Only when you do that can you begin to change. So how do you repent? How do you get out of the shackles of evil that bind you? Well, the good news is that you can do it at any time because the Holy Spirit of God has promised to empower and enable you to do it if you come to Jesus in faith. And so three simple steps real quick and then we'll finish, okay? And this is true for you whether you have been a Christian for 80 years or whether you aren't sure if you're a Christian now or not. There's three steps to repentance that should, that should habituate our daily life. The first step is confess. Admit that you are a worshiper and that you look to give your life meaning to all the wrong things. And, and then admit that you can't help yourself. It's essential that you come completely clean with God. And by the way, he already knows all this about you. Do you know that? Like you're, not, you're not hiding things from him. You might be a master at hiding them from everybody else. And even hiding them from yourself. But you cannot hide from God. It is in your best interest to come clean. To repent. To confess. And then to know that he loves to forgive and receive broken and rebellious people. And if we're going to be honest, then we need to just say that that is hard for us to do. But it's necessary. It's a necessary step. And it's a beautiful step because when you admit the bare naked truth about yourself, you can see the power of God's love, perhaps for the first time. I love what Jen Pollock Michael writes in her book, Teach Us to Want. She says, every time we come to confession, we come to that naked moment of truth and receive from God the wildly improbable gift of grace. Confess. Step two, receive. Receive the forgiveness of God in the gospel of Jesus. When you confess and turn from your sin and your false worship, when you come to your senses spiritually and admit that you need someone to bust you out of your spiritual imprisonment, God floods your life with his light and offers you salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so step two is to receive that and rejoice in it. So confess, receive, and then thirdly, fight. And that step has to come third. If that step comes first, you're never going to have the power to fight. So Fight is step three. After you've already confessed and after you've already received God's forgiving grace, you fight. You fight every day out of your new identity in Jesus through the continual reorientation process of faith and repentance. You fight to center your existence on God. And the good news is that God, the Holy Spirit, lives to help you in your weakness. In fact, right now, the Holy Spirit is praying for you. We read that in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit is praying for you with words that we can't even begin to express. That you would come to your senses spiritually. That you would turn away from these things that you're centering your life around that are never going to give you what they're promising to give you. And that you would orient your life around the living God who is good and true and just and holy. And you know what the good news tells us? The good news tells us that unlike the evil one, you know, what you see here is when the evil one torments and enslaves and crushes his servants. That's what you see here. He unleashes his demonic minions to destroy you when you're serving him through false worship. But the true God 
was tormented for his servants. You ever think about that? Satan torments you when you serve him. God was tormented so that you could serve him and longs for you to serve him because when you serve him, you will finally begin to know life to the fullest, both in this life and in the life to come. So will you follow that kind of king? May the kindness of God lead us this morning to repentance. Let's pray.